What happened on number 96 was the number one topic in the schoolyard. Arnold Feather, as played by Jeff Kevin, did in fact start dating showgirl Robin Ross. And he was not aware that she was not what she was purporting to be. I'm not a girl. Who you said you'd guessed? I, I had guessed nothing of the sort, Miss Ross. And number 96 became the most watched show on Australian TV. To This Way Out, the international LGBTQ radio magazine, I'm Greg Gordon. Estonia's government proposes marriage equality, Namibia's highest court approves foreign-wed queer binational couples, and how Aussie audiences fell in love with TV's first queers. Those stories and more this week because you've chosen This Way Out. I'm Sarah Montague. And I'm Michael LeBeau. With News Wrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBTQ communities around the world for the week ending May 20th, 2023. Estonia's government has approved a draft bill to open civil marriage to same-gender couples. The bill would amend two existing laws, establishing marriage equality under the Family Law Act and allowing couples the option of entering into contracts under the Registered Partnership Act. The proposal also creates a simplified process for couples in registered partnerships to convert their contracts to civil marriage. Legally recognized gay and lesbian couples will also be able to jointly adopt children under the legislation. If approved by lawmakers, the measure would take effect on January 1st of next year. According to the Estonian Human Rights Centre, support for marriage equality has skyrocketed in the northern European Baltic Sea nation. In surveys it has commissioned, 34% of Estonia's 1.3 million people that responded positively in 2012 had grown to 53% in April of this year. It noted a 6% uptick of support in just the past two years. Namibia's government must recognize the unions of its lesbian and gay citizens and the foreign spouses they legally married elsewhere, this by order of the Supreme Court. The justices reviewed the residency applications of two couples, a German woman who married a Namibian woman in Germany and a man from neighboring South Africa who married a Namibian man. South Africa is the only country on the continent with marriage equality. The non-Namibian spouses had been refused residency rights by the Interior Ministry because Namibian queer couples cannot marry domestically and consensual adult sex between men remains a criminal offense. The couples then filed their legal challenge. The 4-1 to ruling on May 16th overturned a lower court decision. The government is ordered to issue permanent residency status to the foreign spouses and to also allow them to seek employment in Namibia. In its written ruling, the nation's highest court determined that the approach of the ministry to exclude spouses in a validly concluded same-sex marriage, infringes both the interrelated rights to dignity and equality of the applicants. In March, the High Court also overturned a lower court ruling and granted citizenship to a binational gay couple's four-year-old son who was born via surrogate in South Africa. 
The Taiwanese legislature has voted to allow married same-gender couples to jointly adopt children. The bill, approved on May 16th, came just a week shy of the four-year anniversary of marriage equality there. Until now, they could only adopt the biological children of their spouses. Taiwan was the first jurisdiction in Asia to open the civil institution to gay and lesbian couples. The government lifted restrictions on recognizing the marriages of queer Taiwanese citizens to their foreign spouses in January. The only exceptions are spouses from mainland China. Fang Chi of the Taiwan Alliance to Promote Civil Partnership Rights told Taiwan Plus News that it's one more step towards granting married queer couples the same rights as their heterosexual counterparts. Following the full legalization of transnational same-sex marriage in January this year, this milestone allows uh, future generations in Taiwan, regardless of their sexual orientation, to adopt children without a blood relationship and grow up in loving families. There was only this brief social media message from the Beijing LGBT Center on May 15th. We very regretfully announce, due to forces beyond our control, the Beijing LGBT Center will stop operating today. The shutdown of one of the country's remaining queer supportive institutions is an escalation of the Chinese government's ongoing crackdown on queer citizens. The center has existed since 2016. The government virtually shuttered dozens of mostly student-run queer supportive social media sites last July. It had already banned any positive portrayals of LGBTQ people in broadcast media and film. The anti-queer rights repression that began soon after Xi Jinping came to power in 2015 has increased rapidly in recent years. The high-profile LGBT rights advocacy China was also forced to close last year. Its specialty was legal challenges to anti-queer discrimination. China officially decriminalized private consensual adult same-gender sex 26 years ago, but that was of little help. Conservative societal taboos still keep most queer people in the closet, and the way the government treats its LGBTQ citizens did not improve. Florida Governor and Republican presidential wannabe Ron DeSantis signed still more bills this week to persecute LGBTQ people, their families, and their health care providers. Uh, we're happy to do that. The state's infamous Don't Say Gay law is now extended from elementary school all the way through high school. Other bills pushing towards an anti-21st century DeSantis world ban both gender-affirming health care for trans minors and drag shows and prohibit transgender people from using bathrooms based on their gender identity. Another bill pulled state funding for diversity, equality, and inclusion initiatives at colleges and universities. Meanwhile, the new drag ban law has already caused at least two Sunshine State LGBTQ Pride celebrations to cancel. Organizers in Port St. Lucie and Tampa say they were concerned that participation by anyone in drag would violate the law. The City Commission in queer-friendly Wilton Manors voted to amend the permit for this year's Pride celebration so that drag queens can march in the parade, but what the anti-drag law calls adult performances are forbidden in the parade itself and on outdoor stages as originally planned. Lawmakers in Republican-dominated Nebraska approved a bill that combines a ban on most abortions in the state with a ban on gender-affirming health care for trans people under the age of 19. Republican Governor Jim Pillen is expected to sign it. 
opponents are likely to challenge it based on a state constitutional requirement that legislation focus on a single issue. Supporters of the measure call it a single-issue bill addressing medical procedures. Texas lawmakers passed a bill this week to deny gender-affirming health care to minors. Potential Republican presidential candidate Governor Greg Abbott has promised to sign it. The queer advocacy groups Lambda Legal and Transgender Law Center have already filed a preemptive lawsuit challenging its constitutionality, partnering with the state and national American civil liberties unions. Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey bowed to public outrage this week and withdrew his ban on gender-affirming health care for all trans people in the state, regardless of their age. A judge had already stopped enforcement of the draconian emergency edict while a legal challenge proceeded. However, Republican Governor Mike Parson is expected to sign a more typical legislative attack, a ban on gender-affirming health care for trans people under the age of 18. Finally, the West Hollywood, California City Council honored this way out on May 15th with a proclamation celebrating this program's 35th anniversary. Council member John Heilman presented the honor accepted on behalf of the staff and volunteers by associate producer Lucia Chappelle. Looking back over these 35 years that we've been on the air, I am amazed at the accomplishments that we've been able to cover of the LGBTQ community. We've brought down sodomy laws. We liberated the military. We changed culture, art, music, and fashion. We survived AIDS. We won marriage equality. We opened the doors to an unimaginable, unforeseen unpacking of gender. We have seen a thousand pronouns bloom. Now we learn that the last to get rights, the first to lose rights as we see LGBTQ people, especially BIPOC LGBTQ people. We're the first targets of the reactionary, authoritarian forces of patriarchy and misogyny. Now we learn that as visible as we've become, we can be silenced with the snap of a finger. Don't say gay, don't read books, don't see drag, don't wake up. Now we learn that a unique outlet for authentic LGBTQ voices is still desperately needed now to guarantee our future. So we very humbly accept this recognition of our work. Moreover, we dedicate this recognition to the LGBTQ people and our allies whose voices of resistance and stories of courage we work to broadcast. Thank you again. That was This Way Out associate producer Lucia Chappelle acknowledging a 35th anniversary proclamation for the International LGBTQ Radio Magazine by the City Council of West Hollywood. That's News Wrap, global queer news with attitude for the week ending May 20th, 2023. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap is written by Greg Gordon, edited by Lucia Chappelle, produced by Brian DeShazor, and brought to you by you. Thank you. Help keep us in ears around the world at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast, and much more. For This Way Out, I'm Michael LeBeau. Stay healthy. And I'm Sarah Montague. Stay safe.
Our listeners support This Way Out in many ways. By subscribing to our e-newsletter, email us at info at thiswayout.org. And through your financial contributions to our program. More information and a link to give are online at thiswayout.org. Thank you. Last time on This Way Out... There was an interracial love affair between an African-American man and a white woman. That ruled the show out for American TV. There were lots of homosexual themes throughout the show. It made it virtually impossible for anyone else in the world to screen it, except for Australia. Captain Kirk and Lieutenant Uhura's infamous Star Trek kiss still have U.S. television execs sniffing their smelling salts. And small screens around the world were way in the back of the closet when audiences down under embraced a groundbreaking soap opera. This way out, Sydney correspondent Barry Mackay has more about the characters whose impact is the subject of a new documentary. This week we continue to look at Outrageous, the queer history of Australian TV that premiered at the Sydney Mardi Gras Film Festival earlier this year, which featured the first openly gay character to be portrayed in a soap opera anywhere in the world. And that was here in Australia back in early 1972 on the groundbreaking series number 96. The character was a lawyer, Don Finlayson, played by Joe Hashem. I'm speaking with the documentary's director, Andrew Mercado. How did the role affect Joe Hashem's personal life and career? It didn't seem to negatively affect him at all. In fact, he very quickly became the number one male pinup of the show. He was hugely popular. He got a ton of fan mail. There were posters of him in TV Week. As the show went on, his popularity just kept growing and growing. It's interesting, though, to look back on it, though, because when you look back at the press of the day, you could see that the press was a little bit wary of the type of character he was playing. A lot of time they just conveniently left out the fact that he was playing a homosexual. I think it becomes really apparent when he ends up in a live-in relationship with a boyfriend called Dudley, as played by Chad Haywood. They are living together in the show for three years, and yet no magazine ever really acknowledges it. Or they kind of say, oh, you know, Don and Dudley are flatmates. Um, No, they're more than flatmates. They're actually live-in lovers. But the press really was trying to downplay that because they were uncomfortable with this notion that homosexuality was being presented by that and that the audience was responding to it. And the audience did accept his character and they did like his character. And along with all of the mail he was getting from Females, young girls, mothers saying, I've got a daughter that can turn you straight. There was a lot of fan mail coming in from gay men. And the gay men were saying to him, thank you. Thank you for showing that there is a future where I could go to the big city and be accepted. And Joe Hashem, to his absolute credit, personally wrote back to every one of those gay men. At the world premiere of the documentary in Sydney... I asked Joe Hashem why he went to the trouble of writing back to every letter he got from viewers of number 96 
on the subject of homosexuality. You know, I, I just felt that there was, I, I had a huge responsibility playing the role, and especially being straight. It was a heavy burden on my shoulders to make sure. And when these fathers, and they, they were, you know, and some of them were heartbreaking. The ones that I got had particularly concerned with either the father writing about his son's sexuality and, and what could I do to help. I would respond, but then in my response, I would also say, look, I'm not the expert on this. I do have some gay friends that, that would be only too happy to talk to you or to talk to your son. So I think that when you talk about the definition of a queer ally, you put Joe Hashem and producer Bill Harmon into that character because they saw the positive impact that that show was having and they very quickly became queer allies. Number 96 also had the world's first transgender character in TV drama. Yeah. There was a character in the show, I would describe him as a nerd, Arnold Feather. He arrived in the show, he was keen to lose his virginity, uh, he had a lot of romantic disasters that never ever quite happened. He was a character there for a bit of comic relief. And so along this path of always picking the wrong girl, Arnold Feather, as played by Jeff Kevin, did in fact start dating showgirl Robin Ross and he was not aware that she was not what she was purporting to be. And in a very thankfully famous scene that has been retained, uh, you see Arnold Feather trying to seduce her and you see uh, the character of Robin, as played by Carlotta, having to explain to him, I I'm not a girl. You must know how I, how I feel about you. Honey, now listen to me first. There's something about me you have to know. I don't say it. There's no need to. I, I already know. You do? How? You mean Terry's told you after all? Well, she hinted the whole thing at me earlier today, but in point of actual fact, my dear Robin, she, she had no need for... I had already guessed. You had? And you don't mind? Oh, how could I possibly mind? There isn't a particle of you that I don't love or, or want or remember. And you really don't mind me not being a girl? I beg your pardon? I, I'm not a girl. But you said you'd guessed. I, I, I had guessed nothing of the sort. Uh, Miss Ross. Mr Ross? You know, some people look at that scene today and think, well, that's transphobic, you're making fun of her. But in actual fact, that's not what's happening at all. You've got, in 1973, for the first time on TV, a trans woman who's having a romance. She's in the show for several weeks. She doesn't get dehumanised in any way. People don't point and scream at her when they find out that she's not a girl, as she puts it. And they treat her with respect in that show. And, you know, you just have to look at the fact that the authentic casting in that, to actually have a trans actor playing a trans role, it takes American TV nearly 30 years for them to be as authentic as we were back in the 70s. So that is a truly groundbreaking 
groundbreaking world first. And what you've got to remember is that Carlotta was known to the Australian public at that stage. She'd been appearing on TV since the 1960s. She was part of a show in Sydney called Lay Girls, which was considered the height of sophisticated entertainment in King's Cross. If you're a tourist and you went to Sydney and you went to King's Cross, you went to see the show where the showgirls were actually uh, female impersonators. So number 96 was uh, extremely fortunate because you had created David Sale who was gay and he had brought in story editor Johnny White who was also gay and together they had a real camp sensibility. They'd worked together before. They were brilliant at writing comedy um, and so they're depictions of gay and bisexual and trans people as per the world they knew was spot on and was written with real authenticity. Edith. Edith. Oh, there you are, Daddy. Daddy? Do you mean who's your father? What's he taking, monkey glands? If he's not, that's the best nick and tuck job I've ever seen. Oh, don't be silly, boys. Daddy's Husband? How much can you get? Edith, <laughs> what's the meaning of this, this orgy? Well, it isn't an orgy, dear. It's just a party to celebrate my new job with the Gay Lib. Gay Lib? The Gay Liberation Movement. I'm their new public relations officer. Edith, I'm going to wash. When I return, I want to see this room cleared. Cleared, do you understand? Good many you are, Cab. Take no notice, boys. Now, what were you saying? <laughs> oh, excuse me, madam. But at least it's a relief to find someone normal in this flat. Shut up those thin-lipped, sweetie, and give us a kiss. There weren't, however, any lesbian writers, or certainly none that identified as open lesbians. And so when number 96 finally got round to a lesbian character, she turned out to be a devil-worshipping witch who was going to uh, sacrifice Abigail's character to the devil because they discovered she was actually a virgin. So that's not a great depiction. What are your earliest memories of number 96 on TV in the 70s and how did it affect you and Australian TV viewing audiences? Did it help young LGBT kids at the time, do you think? I truly do think it did. I was 10 years old when it started and I distinctly remember the first time I saw a promo for it on TV and I had this overwhelming uh, attraction to it, even from the first promo. And I remember turning to my parents and saying, I want to watch that. And I recall the look of horror crossing their faces that I was showing any interest in it at all. And the thing about it was that you know, this is back in an era when we only had four TV channels and number 96 quickly became the most watched show on Australian TV. And I was buying TV Week at the time and the show was being written about in the TV magazine. So under the guise of I'm buying this magazine because the Brady Bunch are on the cover, I'm also learning about number 96 and yes I was going to a Catholic school and most of the kids there their parents didn't want them to watch the show but there was a handful of kids that was watching it and we grilled them for information and that was happening at schoolyards all across Australia for several years there what happened on number 96 was the number one topic in the schoolyard. Everyone was talking about the fact, oh, there was a bit of nudity last night. And also, 
Everybody was talking about the fact that Don was a poofta. That word was being thrown about as a slur, but it was also being thrown around. I mean, I knew I was gay at that stage. I don't know that I had a language for it, but I knew that I was attracted to men. And so I was attracted to number 96 because I knew that there were gay characters in there. And I was looking at the pinups of Joe Hashem and everyone in TV Week. So I was very, very aware of it. But you know, it's only now as an old man that I'm really coming to grips with the effect that it had on me. Because certainly I became obsessed with number 96 and probably still am a little bit today. And I just wore my parents down. I never stopped asking to watch that show. And eventually we got a black and white TV in the kitchen and they said, go into that room and watch it and shut up about it. And so eventually I I got to see um, a lot of it. But you know, in the making of this documentary and talking to other gay people who are younger than me. And I'm talking about people that are only 10 years younger than me. So if I'm growing up in the 70s seeing all of this on TV, if you talk to someone who's 10 years younger than me who grew up in the 80s, they see nothing. If you go through the 80s and the 90s at that development stage, the only gay men you see on TV are sick and dying of AIDS. That's the difference. I grow up seeing gay characters on number 96 and being very aware of it and knowing that these guys are successful in their jobs, that they're liked by their communities, that people think they're fun and they want to be around them, to then not noticing the fact that that depiction wasn't there in the 80s and the 90s as AIDS took hold. And so that is quite incredible. And I realise now that what is missing from my youth, which I hear from a lot of gay people today, even people who are growing up today in 2023, is the shame of being gay. I suffered not a moment of guilt or shame around it. I'm not saying that my life was perfect, uh, that I didn't get bullied, that I didn't get called poofter. I did. But it bounced off me. In my head, all I was thinking was, I won't be at this school forever. And when I go out into the real world, I'm going to be whoever I want to be. And I really now credit that with the positive depictions of gay men that I was seeing on TV, because I'm now very aware that there are a whole bunch of kids who didn't see that and, you know, inched into that lifestyle with a whole bunch of guilt and shame and internalised homophobia, which I feel very fortunate not to have uh, endured. Outrageous, the queer history of Australian TV is expected to hit the international LGBTQ plus film festival circuit this year. More on the groundbreaking Australian soap opera number 96. We actually saw straight characters welcoming queer characters into their lives every night of the week for five years and that just wasn't done anywhere else in the world in the 70s. Darling, we'll all be together in the flat again and everything coming up roses. Next time on This Way Out, I'm Barry Mackay in Sydney, Australia.
For more information about Outrageous, the producer's website is andrewmercado, that's M-E-R-C-A-D-O, dot com. Thanks for finding This Way Out, brought to you by the nonprofit Overnight Productions. News Rep was reported this week by Sarah Montague and Michael LeBeau and produced by Brian DeShazer. Our correspondent was Barry McKay. Men at Work performed some of the music you heard, along with the TV theme from number 96. Kim Wilson composed and performed our theme music. This Way Out thanks listener donors John Beaupre and Richard Work and Brad Payton of Silicon Valley. They help make this program possible, and so can you. Look for This Way Out Radio on social media, email us at info at thiswayout.org, or write to us at P.O. Box 1065, Los Angeles, California, 90078, USA. For associate producer Lucia Chappell and all of us at This Way Out, I'm Greg Gordon. Thanks for listening online at thiswayout.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And on KBOO, Corvallis, Albany, Hood River, Oregon, WOZO, Knoxville, Tennessee, 2BAY, Byron, Baden, South Wales, and more than 200 other local community terrestrial and internet radio stations around the world, including this one. Stay healthy, stay safe, and stay tuned.